0: Hello, everyone. Jennifer Doliak here. The Probable Causation team is hard at work on some new episodes, but today we're rebroadcasting one of our favorite interviews, first posted in July of 2019. In this episode, I talk with Jeff Weaver about the effects of parental and sibling incarceration. His paper has since been published in the American Economic Review. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Jeff Weaver. Jeff is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Southern California. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: So we're going to talk today about your recent work on the effects of incarceration on the children and siblings of those who are sent to prison. Could you start out by telling us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Sure. Uh, so, broadly speaking, uh, I'm an applied microeconomist with a particular interest in crime and illegal markets. Uh, so, this is a pretty broad research interest. So, some of my past research has looked at illegal markets in the developing world, such as corruption, uh, dowry in India, ways of reining in corrupt government officials. Uh, but more relevant for this podcast, uh, I also work on crime related topics in the US, uh, such as the project we're talking about today on how children are affected by incarceration of family members. Uh, so, here, are how children are affected by incarceration of uh, mothers, fathers, uh, as well as their siblings. Uh, And so I started out becoming interested in this topic during graduate school uh, when I was reading a lot of sociology, uh, particularly ethnographic work focused on lower income communities in the U.S., Uh, And this was uh, partially a way to get a little bit closer to the real world, a little bit away from the the math of grad school, Uh, but through a few books in particular uh, focused around the the criminal justice system, um, it just really jumped off the page how common it is, one, for, for people who have incarcerated family members, and then two, just the different effects that this could have. Um, and when I started looking outside of the more qualitative work and to more quantitative work for, for research on these effects, it just didn't seem like we had that much in the way of really um, convincing uh, causal evidence on what the effects of incarceration were, uh, not on the person who themselves is incarcerated, but on the other people in their lives, such as their family members, community members, uh, etc., and generally, it seems like these these spillover effects may potentially be pretty consequential. So if a child has a caregiver removed from their, from their life, it's pretty easy to imagine some negative consequences from that. So uh, emotional trauma, or uh, potentially as economists, we might think this is removing resources from a households. Uh, this is not just economic resources, but also uh, caregiving resources. Uh, and this potentially may be uh, quite negative. Um, at the same time, though, it's not necessarily obvious this is going to be the case, um, where in some cases... It seems like removing a parent or a sibling uh, who is at the margin of incarceration uh, could actually potentially have some positive impacts. Uh, For one, it could cause a child to transition into a more stable home environment. Uh, I think the most obvious case of this is when the crime that the parent is accused of is one of, uh, say, abuse against the child. It's pretty easy to imagine that this is a reason, this is a case in which it may be that removing this parent from the child's life uh, temporarily uh, may actually be beneficial if this allows them to, say, shift and live with, potentially, a more stable Of caregivers such as uh, potentially grandparents, uh, aunts, and uncles, uh, etc. And just more generally, it seems like something we'd really want to know more about as there's a really large population that's being affected. So, there's uh, one study uh, that found that there's over 5 million children in the US uh, who have had a parent incarcerated uh, at some point in their lifetime. Uh, And so, because of that, just given that there's this huge population being affected, uh, given that it's not necessarily clear what the effect of this is going to be, and that it may be the case that this is actually pretty heterogeneous, where there's some children who are going to benefit from this, and there's other children who potentially are going to be harmed by this, just trying to understand what these what these effects were, were going to be just seemed like uh, something that would be uh, quite useful for us to know um so that's a bit on how I came to it though I should also say as as you said this is this project is joint with two really amazing co-authors uh Sam Norris and, and Matt Pachenko where actually all of us had started working on this uh when we were in grad school we learned the others were working on it and then ended up uh, deciding to work together um and so that's so I actually don't know so they came to it in slightly different ways but that's that's really how I, how I came to it
0: that's a great story about overlapping research leading to a, a positive outcome. <laughs> people tend to freak out when they hear that people are working on the same paper that they're working on, and it's a good when you can combine efforts. One of the things that I love about working on on crime more broadly is that there's, there's a lot of bipartisan interest in reducing our dependence on mass incarceration in the United States and, and thinking about finding more effective and efficient ways to reduce crime. And I, I think this is motivated largely by a sense that what we're doing currently is just not efficient. But it's also motivated in part by this concern that you mentioned that incarceration has important negative externalities. That is that locking people up can have detrimental effects on their kids and on their communities. Um, and that those detrimental effects might cancel out some of the crime reduction benefits we receive. And so your paper is, is one of the first to really try to quantify those spillover effects in a rigorous way. But I, I, I'd love for you to set the stage for us a little bit. You mentioned that there's, there's, you know, a lot of sociology work on this. What had we previously known about the effects of incarceration on the families and communities of those who are incarcerated?
1: Definitely. Uh, so there's a lot of research on this. And I guess you can sort of split it up into a few broad uh, groups of evidence. Uh, so the first, as you said, is more qualitative evidence, uh, particularly in sociology. And so this is one we often skip over as economists. But as someone who personally really loves sociology research, I think we, we lose out a lot by, by not looking at that. And so what most of these uh, studies are looking at is they're uh, following children who have incarcerated parents and trying to understand their experiences. So there's one book that I really like um, by Jane Siegel, uh, who's a criminologist at at Rutgers, called Disrupted Childhoods. And so this follows around 70 children uh, who have incarcerated mothers uh, and tells their stories and experiences. And so I think this gives a a pretty rich view of what's happening. And something I think is really nice and really interesting in this Uh, is that you see that there's really a range of different experiences, where there's some children for whom this is really emotionally traumatic, and you can see the just through their stories, I mean, this isn't quantitative evidence, this is more qualitative, but it, it seems relatively convincing, this has some negative effects on them later in life. Uh, but she also presents um, other cases in which uh, the children are really um, in a home situation, which is very disruptive, uh, particularly in cases where uh, their parents may be uh, suffering from substance abuse issues uh, or, or other related issues. And it may be the case that in these, and some of the, the, the cases she looks at, this is the case, This uh, is actually potentially uh, beneficial for the children by moving them from unstable living situations. And so I think that's a really useful piece of evidence. Uh, the issue with that in terms of thinking more quantitatively is it's hard to know, one, how representative the sample of 70 children is, though I think she's really to be applauded for not just looking at you know four or five children, but trying to look at a very large sample. Um, but even so, uh, even if this is a pretty representative sample, it's kind of hard to know how to aggregate these, though. So what's the net of, so if you're aggregate across all 70 of these children, uh, what's the net effect going to be? Um, to know that, you really have to know uh, how is, how representative or unrepresentative the sample is. And so it's harder to tell a more, a more broader, more quantitative picture. Um. And sort of the more quantitative evidence, there's a really large body of work, uh, again, mostly in quantitative sociology. So there's probably at least over a 100 papers, I would say. I'm not quite sure uh, how many in all. Uh, But what these papers are mostly doing is using uh, survey data. Uh, And so they'll have survey data where there's uh, some children who have incarcerated parents, uh, other children who do not. Uh, And then they'll compare between uh, the children with incarcerated parents and those who do not uh, and look at later life outcomes. So these could be things uh, such as performance in school. Uh, These could be things like uh, labor force participation. Uh, Even there's a a number of papers looking at uh, health effects of having incarcerated parents. But sort of the issue with this is that we might think that children who have incarcerated parents are probably going to be quite different from children uh, whose parents are not incarcerated. uh, One in ways that are potentially possible for us to measure. So maybe their parents will have lower levels of education, uh, or maybe be less wealthy in ways that we can measure. There's also a lot of other ways in which it's going to be, in which they're going to differ, which is going to be pretty hard for us to to measure and to try to control for. Uh, So. Wealth, for example, is going to be pretty hard to control for. Uh, neighborhood characteristics may be hard to control for. Uh, potentially um, uh, psychological aspects of uh, being in a situation where parents are on the margin of incarceration uh, are potentially going to be hard to control for. And so. Uh, these papers which are um, making these comparisons and trying to control for these other differences try to only recover the effect of, of parental incarceration, potentially there's going to be a problem with omitted variables where there's a lot of unobserved things that's going to be hard for us to fully control away. And so most of these papers find relatively negative effects of parental incarceration, but it's a little bit hard for us to know. Is this because of um Parental incarceration having a causal effect, uh, a causal negative effect on the child's later life outcomes, or is this just because we haven't been able to control for all the many um, types of disadvantages that children with incarcerated parents tend to have versus children whose parents uh, are not incarcerated? Um, There's also some more more recent work uh, done uh, predominantly uh, by economists um, that tries to look at this question uh, more causally. Um, So one style of of paper that's looked at this um, is using more of a difference in differences style approach. Uh, So there's a really nice recent paper uh, by Steve Billings uh, using data from North Carolina schools where what he does is he looks at the set of children whose parents are arrested or incarcerated um, and in effect is comparing those children's uh, test score outcomes and uh, behavioral outcomes, uh, comparing the times when their parents are incarcerated or just been arrested versus the times which they were not, and he actually finds relatively positive effects of of having Arrested parents um, on, ch- on children's uh, test score outcomes and, and behavioral outcomes. Um, and so, th- uh, so that's sort of a, a third body of, of work, and there's a few other papers that are doing something similar. Uh, and then finally, there's a, a bunch of papers that uh, are doing something very similar to what we're going to be doing, Is we're going to be looking at more of the long-run effects of parental incarceration. Uh, so uh, papers uh, like the Billings paper is really nice for looking at short-run effects, so you can see right after the parents are arrested, uh, do we see that Uh, Children's test scores tend to go up. Do they tend to go down? Do they tend to stay about the same? Uh, But something else we might want to know is what's going to happen 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line or 30 years down the line. Uh, And so there's uh, five papers that have uh, come out in the last year or so, uh, including ours. uh, They're using a slightly different strategy to try to get at what is this long run effect but uh, trying to get at the causal effect of, of incarceration and try to get around this uh, omitted variable pious problem that we have when we're just comparing children whose parents are incarcerated to those who are not and then trying to control for differences uh, between them.
0: So as you said, there's been a, a bunch of new papers that just came out in the last year or so, and that's been really fun to see. But it's always interesting, like, you know, why now? <laughs> is, yeah. uh, is kind of the question that comes up. And so as you and your co-authors were you know, approaching the study and, and brainstorming ways to, to get at this question, what were the main constraints that you had to overcome? Were they identification challenges? Were they data challenges? Was it both? What were the hurdles here?
1: Yeah, so great question. It's definitely both of those. And I think that also speaks to why all of these papers are coming out at around the same time. So uh, I guess I started working on this project... July of 2015, I think it was, so about four years ago. And I think all the other all the other folks working on these other projects have also been working on these on these papers for a huge amount of time. And the reason for that is just it takes a, a really long time to try to put this data together, where I think a lot of people had been thinking about this and thinking, okay, so there's potentially some strategies that we could use to get around this, but it just takes a really long time to put this data together. And there's a bunch of different components that you need for this project to work, which are pretty hard to satisfy. Um, And so a few of these components are uh, the first of them, and so sort of alluded to this earlier, as you need some sort of exogenous variation in the likelihood of having a family member who's incarcerated or putting this a different way. uh, We want groups of children. Uh, who look very similar to each other, where the only difference between them is that one of these sets of children is more likely to have an incarcerated uh, family member, so uh, either a parent or, or sibling in, in our study, uh, than the other group. Um, and so a common way of doing this, and so I think uh, so, some previous podcast guests have, have talked about this, is using a random assignment of cases to judges, where what happens is that... Um, when uh, after arraignment uh, defendants are randomly assigned to some judges where some judges are, are stricter than others. Uh, and so what this means is that children whose parents are assigned to stricter judges versus less, less strict judges are going to be more likely to have an incarcerated parent. And so these children really look very similar prior to this because it's a random assignment of cases to judges. And so I can, I can talk more about that uh, in a little bit to, to go through the to go through the strategy. Um, but this is going to be providing some source of exogenous variation. And so, sort of the first thing that you're going to want is you're going to want a case in which cases are randomly assigned to judges. This is the, the case in a lot of jurisdictions, but not the case in all. Um, the second thing that you're going to need is you're going to need um, a way of linking children to family members in court data. And so this is actually a lot harder than we had thought going in. Uh, so uh, we're going to be using birth certificate data to match uh, children to their parents. That's actually tends to be pretty tricky to get. And so I know of uh, one person who was working on this um, who put together a lot of really nice data but wasn't able to get the birth certificate data to make it work. And so I think there's probably a number of other cases in which in which that's happened. Um, The sort of the third thing that you need is that we're interested in long run effects on children. And so this means that you need data on what's happening to children over a really long period of time. So first, this means you need birth certificate data if that's what you're going to use going back probably 40 or 50 years. I need quartz data going back probably at least 30 years. Because um, you need the there to be time for the parents to get incarcerated while, the, while their children are still in the home, and then you need enough time for the children to get old enough that we can start observing longer-term outcomes for them, uh, such as uh, things like uh, their likelihood of engaging in criminal activity as adults, uh, potentially educational outcomes, uh, long-run socioeconomic outcomes. It just takes a while, and so you need data going back really far. Uh, And then finally, you just need a lot, a lot, a lot of data uh, to have statistical power to say anything interesting. And so in our regressions, we're typically going to have a sample size of over 100,000 children. Um, And honestly, for some of our outcomes, we would have loved to have more than that. And so putting all of those different pieces together it takes a really long time to do, uh, cause really you have to wrangle data from a bunch of different sources, uh, and then you have to put all the data together, clean the data. And so it just takes a really long time to do. And if even one of the, one of the little components on, uh, this process doesn't work out, then you're kind of out of luck. You're, you're not going to be able to, to do the full project. And so I think both the data and then also finding a place in which there's some source of exogenous variation, uh, sort of those two things, um, uh, together are really, the I think, the main reason that it's, it's taken a while for these projects to, to
0: come out. So your new paper is titled The Effects of Parental and Sibling Incarceration, Evidence from Ohio. Um, as you mentioned, it's, it's co-authored with Sam Norris and Matt Pachenko. So tell us about this policy experiment that you're exploiting in Ohio. You have data from three counties. You found this natural experiment that lets you measure the causal effect of incarceration. So tell us more about this context. Sure.
1: Uh, so the approach we're using is one that's uh, very popular in the in the crime literature. Uh, so we're going to be using random assignment of cases to judges. And so uh, Megan Stevenson did a really good job explaining the strategy during uh, the episode interviewing her. So I'll probably steal a little bit from her and, and trying to come up with uh, good examples to explain it. Um, but in, in effect, what we're going to do or what we're going to want to do is we're trying to cleanly figure out what's the causal effect of parental incarceration. And so here what we really want is we want to see uh, we want two sets of children. Uh, who look pretty identical to one another in, in all of their characteristics, uh, but where one set of them is going to have incarcerated parents uh, and the other one is not. And so the ideal way of doing this would just be a random experiment. Uh, so where defendants are are randomly assigned uh, to be incarcerated or or to not be incarcerated. And so this will produce uh, random variation whether their children have incarcerated family members. And so the easiest way to imagine this is a judge who's completely abdicated their duty and they just flip a coin uh, for every defendant who comes in. If the coin lands heads, uh, they incarcerate them. If the coin lands tails, they choose not to incarcerate them. Uh, So what that means is that, let's say we had a pool of uh, about 2,000 defendants, uh, where all these defendants have children. Um, These 2,000 defendants are going in front of this coin flip judge. Uh, What this means is that, Um, Half of the children are going to be randomly assigned to be incarcerated – or sorry, half of the the children's parents are going to be randomly assigned to be incarcerated. Uh, Half of them are going to be randomly assigned to to not be incarcerated. At the start, the 1,000 who have incarcerated parents are going to look really, really similar to the 1,000 who don't have incarcerated parents uh, because really the only difference between them is just this flip of the coin. And so this means is if 10 years down the road, we collect data on the the children of all these defendants and we see that say children whose parents are incarcerated on average have incomes that are $1,000 lower uh, Than children whose parents were not incarcerated, we're going to be able to say pretty confidently this is due to the incarceration, because prior to um, these children's parents coming into court and being random, in this case, randomly assigned to be incarcerated or not by this judge, these two groups looked very similar. Uh, if we see that a big difference between them emerges later, like a thousand dollar difference in earnings, we say this is we think this is due to incarceration. And so obviously a coin flip seems like a, a really unjust system. That's that's not something that we'd want, um, but our criminal justice system actually does do something uh, kind of like that. And so we're going to be taking advantage of that experiment where uh, this is going to be based on random assignment of cases uh, to the judges where um in many jurisdictions, uh, after arraignment, so after charges are read, uh, defendants are randomly assigned a particular judge. But judges tend to differ pretty substantially in their severity levels, which is going to be sort of similar to a quaint flip. Where in our data in Ohio, so the most lenient judge is going to incarcerate around a quarter of defendants. Uh, the strictest judge is going to incarcerate around half of defendants. And so this is a lot like the coin flip where here it's not one judge flipping a coin. It's that your your name is being randomly assigned a particular judge. And so if you're a lucky defendant, you might get assigned to the lenient judge who only incarcerates around a quarter of defendants. Uh, if you're an unlucky defendant, uh, you're getting uh, the bad flip of the coin. You're getting assigned to a judge who incarcerates more like half of defendants. Um, and so to sort of to to continue with the example is so imagine that there's these 2000 defendants and imagine you can split them into three different groups and so let's say that a quarter of them committed really serious crimes uh, so think of things like uh, murder aggravated assaults uh, crimes of uh, sexual assault these sort of crimes uh, a quarter of them committed uh, more medium severity crimes so think maybe somewhat more serious drug-related crimes, or, or something like that, uh, and then half of them committed very low severity crimes. Uh, so think of things like, uh, you know, uh, fail, failure to uh, heal your dog in public, or, or something like that. Um, something where it, this isn't this isn't such a serious crime. And so, if these two judges are, if these 2,000 defendants are being randomly split between uh, two judges, let's say, one judge who's incarcerating half the time, so that's a strict judge, uh, one uh, judge who incarcerates uh, a, a quarter of the time, uh, so the more the more lenient judge. Uh, let's think about what's happening to each of these different groups of defendants. Uh, so let's start off with the 500 defendants who committed really serious crimes. So 250 of them are going to go to this really lenient judge. Uh, 250 of them are going to go to the strict judge. And so the lenient judge is incarcerating only about a quarter of the people who come before them. Um, presumably they're going to be incarcerating the quarter who are committing these really serious crimes. Uh, and so these 250 who go to the lenient judge are going to uh, be incarcerated. Uh, and the 250 who go to the strict judge are also probably going to be incarcerated. So all these defendants who are committing the more serious crimes are probably going to be incarcerated, uh, regardless of the judge that they're assigned to. Um, similarly, if you look at the a thousand who committed the crimes that are, that are not so serious. So half of them are going to the lenient judge, half are going to the strict judge. Uh, in both cases, the strict judge is only incarcerating about half of people. Presumably, they're not incarcerating the people who committed the least, the least, uh, severe crimes. And so all the people who are not committing the more severe crimes are probably not going to be incarcerated. Um, What's going to happen is for the people who are committing these more medium-severity crimes, uh, there's going to be about 250 of them assigned to the strict judge and 250 to the lenient. So these are the ones where the judge to whom you're assigned is probably going to matter, where if you're assigned to the strict judge, this judge tends to incarcerate these types of offenses, where the lenient judge tends not to. And so what this is going to mean is that the children of these defendants are going to differ in the likelihood of having a parent who's incarcerated, where those assigned to the strict judge are going to have bunch much more likely to have an incarcerated parent, those assigned to the lenient judge are going to be much less likely to have an incarcerated parent. And so what that means is that these two groups of, of defendants' children look really similar at the start before their parents are randomly assigned to the judge. Um, if later down the road we collect information from them, so let's say that we see that the children whose, uh, the thousand children whose parents were assigned to the strict judge have earnings that are $250 lower than the 1,000 defendants whose children were assigned to the the less severe judge, Um, we're going to say this is attributable to incarceration. And given that we know that this difference in incarceration rates between these two judges is about a quarter of the population, we can rescale this to say this is going to amount to about a loss of $1,000 in earnings as a function of having an incarcerated parent. And so what we're going to do is something slightly more complicated than that. So we're going to be using all the judges in our data uh, and the probabilities of incarceration are going to scale between a quarter and a half. So we're going to be using um, judge severity as an instrumental variable for likelihood of having an incarcerated parent. That's sort of the, the intuition for, for the strategy that we're going to be using.
0: Whenever we read these um, these judge randomization papers in class, my students are always horrified that there's so much variation across judges and the likelihood that they'll incarcerate people. Um, and of course, it's not uh, not ideal for justice, but is certainly good for research. And so, so as you've just explained, you know this this type of identification strategy is going to measure the effect of incarceration for those. On the margin, so for those for whom being assigned to a different judge might actually lead to a different outcome. So for these these medium severity offenders in your example, who are they in in your context? Who should we think of as the relevant population here that your analysis is going to be telling us about? Definitely.
1: So they're actually going to be in a lot of ways the defendants who we see who are. The marginal defendants are the ones who are being affected by the judges to whom they're assigned. In a lot of ways, they actually look pretty similar to the overall population in terms of demographic characteristics. Where, for example, um, they're no, uh, they're more, they're no more or less likely to be parents than uh, general popula- than the overall population. They're more no more or less less likely to to be black versus white. Uh, they are more likely to. Um, have committed crimes that are related to drug offenses. Um, they're much less likely to have committed very serious crimes. So, for example, a crime such as murder. Uh, so, for that type of uh, that type of case, really, the judge to whom you're assigned that's probably not going to that's not going to affect whether or not you're incarcerated. That if you're found guilty, you are almost certainly going to be incarcerated. Uh, though, in, in fact, in our case, uh, murder cases in the state of Ohio are not randomly assigned. So, that's a, a bit of a bad example. But think a very serious aggravated assault or, or something like that uh and then again the the cases which are uh, much much later so think maybe a very simple marijuana possession or something like that these are the the cases in which individuals are much less likely to be incarcerated and they're not really going to be affected by the judge to whom they're assigned so the types of cases you should be thinking about are sort of medium severity uh drug drug cases uh, less severe um cases of say assault so simple assault or something like that these are more the sort of cases that we'd expect uh to to be affected by the the judge to whom uh a, someone is assigned
0: Okay. And then as we're thinking about the treatment of incarceration, what should we think of as the counterfactual here for the kids? So if someone's mom or dad is locked up, who do they typically live with instead? Do, can you see that in any way?
1: Yeah. So it's going to depend a lot on the identity of the whether it's a mother or a father. Uh, so when it's the case of fathers, so around five percent of the time, the children are going to live with their mother. Uh, and so in many of these cases, the children already live with their mother and the father uh, may not be currently resident with them. Uh, so that's not something that we can see in our data, uh, but this is something that in, in some other uh, survey data uh, people have shown. Uh, and then in the rest of the cases, um, they're mostly going to be living with grandparents or other relatives. This may be because the children uh, are removed from the father's care or, and, and taken to live with the, the, the grandparents or, or other relatives, or in many cases, uh, and actually probably a little bit like more like a majority of cases, they're already living with uh, those relatives. Uh, in the case of mothers, um, so here about uh, 40, uh, 40, 45% of the time, uh, they're going to be living with their grandparents. Uh, and about, uh, I think, 30 to 35% of the time, it's going to be the father. Uh, around 20% of the time, it's going to be uh, other relatives. Um, but it's actually not very frequently going to be foster care. So only about 11% of the children uh, with incarcerated mothers are going to be uh, are going to be in foster care. For children with incarcerated incarcerated fathers, it's going to be an even lower figure. So it's going to be a, a lot closer to to 2%. And I'm, I think my percentages probably didn't all end up all uh, add up there, but uh, it's that's roughly the the percentages uh, that we're talking about. Where most of the time for for mothers, the children will be living with grandparents uh, or or with other family members, but very rarely um, in foster care.
0: Okay, and I think that's really important because I think most people probably have in mind that the kids are going to be, you know, thrown into the foster care system. And if in practice they actually wind up potentially living with more stable family members, that um, could help explain why sometimes there are beneficial effects. Exactly. Um, okay, so you you talked a little bit about the the cool data you're using. You have a, a whole bunch of administrative data sets from Ohio. And I think this paper provides a really great example of being creative and resourceful and finding ways to quantify things that might seem difficult to measure at the outset. So tell us about all the cool data you've been able to gather and link together for the study.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um, so the data that we have is, uh, as you said before, it's from the the three largest counties in Ohio. So this is Cuyahoga County, uh, Franklin County, and Hamilton County. Uh, folks probably know this better as the the counties surrounding the cities of Cleveland, Columbus, uh, and Cincinnati. Uh, and so together, these different counties, they have a combined population of about three and a half million. Uh, and something that's that's nice actually about working in Ohio. So this isn't something that we realized uh, going in. This is something that we realized later. And we're sort of we're sort of glad that it ended up working out in ohio so i should i should mention here as well that this was not the first place that we tried to do this 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 project we had to look at a lot of different places trying to find a setting in which we were able to to get all this data and put it all together uh, one of the things that's nice about Ohio is it's actually very similar to the rest of the U.S. Um, when it comes to, to crime and criminal activity. So the crime rate in Ohio um, annually is about 4,000 crimes for 100,000 people. That compares very closely to the, the overall U.S. average, which is a little bit under 4,000. So it's, it's very, very close. Uh, recidivism rates, incarceration rates are also really, really close to the overall U.S. average. And so we think that that this this uh, um, the results that we get from Ohio are, are hopefully going to be able to generalize um, outside of outside of the state of Ohio, and I'll probably come we can come back and, and talk more about the generalization and heterogeneity at the end because I think especially when thinking about uh, many of the other really nice papers that have come out uh, over the past year, or so using a very similar strategy to ours, I think it's going to be important to think about why do we perhaps see somewhat different results uh, across different settings. Um, and so our main result, or our main approach is going to be to use uh, administrative data. So this is going to be data collected by by government agencies. Um, where um, basically what we'll do is we'll uh, go around and try to form a data usage agreement where they'll they'll let us use their data. Uh, sometimes um, with some uh, some restrictions on that in terms of uh, some fields that are anonymized or, or things like that. And so the different data that we're going to be using is, uh, first of all, uh, really the basis for this is going to be courts data. And so we're going to have court records for um, the what amounts to felony courts and misdemeanor courts uh, in all three of these counties for adults. And so we can see anyone who appears in these courts as a defendant uh, going back in, in most of our counties to around the early 90s. Um, What we're then going to do is we're going to take about 50 years worth of birth certificate data. Uh, Then we're going to use that to match parents to children. So if we see someone appears as a defendant in court, uh, we're going to look to see do they appear as the mother or father in birth certificate data. Uh, and then we're also going to be able to match uh, children to their to their siblings in a similar way, where we'll look for um, people who are criminal defendants uh, in the in the courts, uh, look to look uh, match them to their birth certificates to figure out who their mother and their father are, and then match them to their siblings uh, through people who have either a common uh, mother or a common a common father, um, and so that's really going to be. Th- Those two sources of data are really going to be the key things that we use um, in terms of trying to get these measures of whether a child has an incarcerated parent. And then also for uh, getting this exogenous variation and likelihood of having an incarcerated parent, we're going to use court records on on the judges and use this to figure out who's a severe judge, who's a a less severe judge. Um, In terms of outcomes data, uh, so we're going to be using the court data for one, so we're going to be looking to see, you know, 20 years down the line, uh, what's the likelihood that a child who has an incarcerated parent uh, commits a a crime or is accused of a crime themselves uh, and then also potentially is incarcerated for for the crime that they're accused of? Um, We're also going to have data from juvenile courts uh, in the the city of Cleveland. Um, And so this is going to allow us to measure uh, not just adult criminal activity, but also juvenile criminal activity. Um, we also have data on uh, academic performance, so we'll have school records from Cleveland public schools. Uh, so here we'll be able to measure things like uh, children's test scores on um, on large tests, like the no child left behind tests. I'll uh, we'll also be able to measure grade repetition. And so we'll have um, a little bit less of the school's data, so we'll have eight years worth of school's data. For the other data, we'll usually have uh, more on the order of, of 20 or 30 years, um, but still enough to, to, I think, say something interesting. Um, We also have uh, the birth certificate data we can use to measure teen pregnancy. So after doing this matching, we then look to see the children whose parents are are criminal defendants. Do we see that they appear as as parents themselves, as as teenagers? Uh, And then finally, uh, the last thing that we're going to do is we're going to be trying to measure what's the neighborhood in which children live as adults and use that as a measure of their adult socioeconomic status. Um, Where the idea of what we're going to be doing here is we're going to figure out what's the address that a child lives in as an adult. We're then going to match this to American Community Census, uh, sorry, American Community Survey data, on the wealth of in a particular census block group. So this is a very low level of geographic a- aggregation, uh, so having about you know a thousand to three thousand people in it. Uh, this measures uh, the poverty level of people living within that census block group, and so we'll be able to see um, does the child after they grow up after they're an adult. Um, Are they more likely to live in a wealthier or a poorer neighborhood? This potentially one is just serving as a proxy measure for how uh, wealthy or or how poor they are, as well as um, there's a lot of nice recent research looking at neighborhood effects. And so eventually the neighborhood in which the child lives in as an adult is going to have some important ramifications for for them in terms of ability to find work, for example, as well as for their children in terms of um, their children's later life outcomes. I think there's so there's one other data set that we also use. Uh, so we'll be using data from evictions court. So um, we'll be using that to try to measure uh, after a child's parent is incarcerated, what effect does this have on their economic outcomes uh, by looking at what's the likelihood that their their family is evicted. Uh, and there's a few other. I think I think that covers the main data sets that we use. Uh, there's a, there's a large number, and so hopefully. Uh, Listeners can appreciate this is why it took us a really long time to put this together uh, and why all of these projects that have working on the, have been have been working on this have just taken a really long time to, to to get off the ground.
0: Yeah. And just in case anyone's curious, you match all of these, I think using name and birth date, was that right? Oh uh, yeah, that's right. These are yeah. not data sets yeah. where you have like social security numbers and all of them. So it's usually not uh, the case in, in crime data in particular, uh, which makes it even harder. Yep. Okay, cool. So let's dive into the main results. So what do you find are the effects of parental incarceration on their kids' criminal activity? Sure.
1: Uh, so I should be very upfront with the, uh, about these as well. So the results that we got were very surprising to us. I think going into this project, we all had this idea that this the effects of uh, parental incarceration in particular, particular, something like maternal incarceration, were going to be pretty negative. And so when we saw these results uh, come out in STATO, Needless to say, we were a little bit surprised by what we found, which is that uh, children whose parents are incarcerated, so using this random assignment of cases to judges to look at what's the causal effect of, of having an incarcerated parent, are actually less likely to commit crime themselves as adults or as as juveniles and less likely to become incarcerated themselves uh, as either uh, as as adults and as juveniles where we see is that um the child's likelihood of ever being incarcerated goes down by about 3.2 percentage points which is a a pretty uh, large effect and these effects are concentrated among children who live in the poorest neighborhoods um and so as i said this is this is not something that we that we expected to see and there's there's a number of different mechanisms that potentially could could explain this, uh, but in generally what it looks like is that having incarcerated parents uh, seems to be having at least when it comes to criminal activity, somewhat beneficial outcomes on the child's um, later uh, later life outcomes in terms of, of committing crime. Um, the thing that I think is nice at looking at both uh, juvenile criminal activity and adult criminal activity is we might imagine that maybe there's short different short-run and long-run effects where maybe the effect of having an incarcerated parent maybe leads to um, some emotional uh, dislocation or, or, or trauma such that children may be more likely to commit crimes in the short-run, but perhaps uh, for a variety of reasons, this may make them less likely to commit crimes in the long run. That's not what we see. What we what we really see is there's a short-run reduction in crime and, and juvenile crime and also a, a longer-run reduction in adult crime. Uh, the adult crime results are actually a little bit less strong than the juvenile results, um, particularly when you look at the subsample of, of children who are, are born in the poorer neighborhoods. Um, the effects are, are pretty strong. That There does seem to be a reduction uh, in criminal activity.
0: And you mentioned um, potentially differential effects by whether it's the mother or father incarcerated. Do you find differences there?
1: Uh, so there are slight differences. Uh, they're not statistically significant, um, and so I, I, I hesitate a little bit to uh, to to say whether. Um, whether whether one is uh is more or less strong because we we can't reject that the that the two are the same um uh, but if you're just strictly to look at the point estimates it does look like it's a little bit stronger of an effect for maternal incarceration versus uh paternal but again this is one of those things where you know we have you know 100 100 and I think 40,000 observations here uh, we'd love to have you know 500,000 observations to really be able to tell the difference between uh, maternal and, and paternal uh, even though suggestively it looks like it's maybe a little stronger for maternal
0: Yeah, I think that would be consistent with at least anecdotal evidence that for a lot of judges anyway, they need to feel like the woman standing in front of them is in particularly bad shape in order to lock her up if she's a a mom um, and might not be as reluctant if if it's a dad. Um, And so the marginal mother might just be higher risk, um, say, than the the marginal dad. Um, Do you see any differences by the gender of the kids in terms of outcomes?
1: Yeah, so here's, it's, it's again a case where we can say there's some suggestive effects, but we can't uh, reject that uh, the estimates that we get are uh, statistically uh, not different from one another. So we do see larger effects in terms of the point estimates for boys. So, for example, for, for juvenile incarceration, I think we see a reduction of about uh, 3.9 percentage points, whereas for, uh, for, for women or for girls uh, we see a reduction of I think 1.8 percentage points um, but this is really just coming the, the main reason for this is just boys are much more likely to um, be accused of criminal activity and be incarcerated than than, than girls um, and so I think a lot of that is just is just coming through that it's just that girls are just much less likely to commit crime um, in general
0: okay and then you you do have all these other outcome measures so you have teen parenthood long- run socioeconomic status evictions what do you
1: find there yeah so um, So we get generally somewhat consistent results, though it depends a little bit for the, uh, across the different, different outcomes. Uh, So we don't see any statistically significant effects on test scores. Uh, So here we have a positive point estimate, uh, but nowhere near statistical significance. I don't, I don't, I think that the p-value is probably around like 0.2 or 0.3 or something like that. Um, And so we don't find any statistically significant effect. Um, Our standard errors are moderately sized, so we can rule out um, medium-sized uh, negative effects on children which is given that our prior here the the thing that that we thought and i think most people when we when we first talk about this project thought was that this was going to have pretty negative effects on, on children we can rule out um, you know moderate size negative effects on on child's test score child academic outcomes um, for teen pregnancy uh, so again uh here we're not going to be able to say that um we uh, the the effect that we get a null effect so we can't rule out that um, the effect is, is zero. Uh, here, our standard errors are going to be a little bit bigger, and so we're going to be a little bit less confident um, in saying that there is or isn't an effect on teen pregnancy. Um, this is also just a, a more subtle outcome to, to, try, to, to try to detect. Uh, so we, you know, we can rule out relatively large effects on teen pregnancy, either positive or negative, um, but we we can't rule out a, a zero effect. Um, but really, the one that we we have the most power to look at, and the one again, this was this was pretty surprising to us. We didn't really expect to see effects of this magnitude. Uh, was on long run socioeconomic status. Um, and so, as I said before, what we look at is we look at uh, adult residential uh, address. Uh, we geocoding this to see uh, what's the average uh, poverty level of the neighborhood in which in which uh, children live in as adults. Uh, and generally, what we find is that children whose parents are incarcerated actually tend to live in in wealthier neighborhoods as adults, um, where for whatever reason, and this is something that we we can say with confidence, is that this effect seems to be stronger for girls than it is for boys. Um, and so we, it may just be the case that maybe the um, and so there's some other recent evidence looking at this that intergenerational mobility uh, for girls versus boys. It may just be that uh, there's more elasticity for girls um, in terms of intergenerational mobility than there is for boys. So maybe that's why the effect is stronger. Uh, we don't have a very good uh, we don't have a very good um, understanding of that right now. That's, that's one of the things, if we had you know, 500,000 or a million observations, maybe we'd be able to dig into a little bit more. Um, but for now, really, what we can say is there does seem to be this positive effect uh, on socioeconomic status, mostly driven by girls. Um, but broadly, w- w- the way we sort of uh, interpret these findings is that, in general, it seems like, on net, that these are, are relatively positive. Of course, though, there's going to be a lot of heterogeneity here, and so as as I said at the beginning, there's almost certainly going to be some cases in which some children are going to be hurt. Almost certainly, some cases in which children are going to be harmed. The effect that we're going to be capturing is the net effect of those two different effects. It we find that the net effect is positive, but it certainly doesn't mean that there are some children who are who are going to be harmed by this, and that's obviously something that's going to be uh, pretty important to think about, especially when thinking about what are the policy implications of this study uh, or or something like that. We, I just want to be very clear: we're not saying that incarceration of, of is good for everyone. What we're saying is that on net, for I think as you very nicely pointed out, for this marginal population, for these defendants of for this population of defendants who are who are marginal in terms of incarceration or not, um, it does seem to be that the effects are on net at least uh, relatively positive.
0: And then so that's all for parental incarceration. You're also able to link the folks who are incarcerated to their siblings, um, and so you can measure the effects of sibling incarceration. What do you find there?
1: Yeah, so for sibling incarceration, so here we're going to be a little bit limited by sample size uh, and the outcomes we look at. And so for here, we solely focus on the, ad- the outcome of adult criminal activity. So what is the effect of having an incarcerated sibling on the likelihood that the child is... Um, is either uh, accused of a crime as an adult or is incarcerated as an adult, we find here is is very quite large effects, uh, quite large reductions in adult criminal activity as a function of having an incarcerated sibling. And so uh, the reduction that we find um, is around uh, 6.7 percentage points, which is a really, really large effect. Um, this is larger for for boys than for girls, uh, and here we can we're close to being able to say this is a larger effect for boys than for girls. But again, this is just because boys just commit crimes at, at a much higher rate than uh, than than women do. Um, and so there's there's actually one other recent paper I should flag here that looked at this uh, in Norway using um, the same identification strategy that we're using, uh, using random assignment cases to judges. And they find something very similar to what we do, where incarceration of siblings uh, greatly reduces the likelihood of the of the other sibling um, being uh, arrested for a crime. Uh, the effects that we find are actually, so our effects are we think are pretty large. The effects they find there are actually even larger than the ones that, that we find. Um, and in general, we, we do a little bit of work looking into the mechanisms. It looks like a large part of the reason for this is is what's happening when particularly in the case of removal of siblings is this maybe removing a, a criminogenic influence or an influence that makes the child uh, potentially more likely to engage in criminal activity this could potentially be because uh, the siblings are introducing one another to criminal peers maybe the siblings are committing crimes together there may be some uh, some just sort of peer spillover mechanisms that are that are going on there and so that really seems to be the story there it's a, a little bit of a different story than the parental incarceration story um, but nonetheless, we find uh, somewhat similar results, So I think, for, for a slightly different set of reasons. And I think really this sort of more like a peer spillover effects is the reason we find so much larger effects for siblings uh, than we do for parents.
0: Yeah, so let's talk more about all the, the nice tests you do to try to tease apart mechanisms. Uh, I think that's a really nice contribution to this paper uh, in addition to you know, the incredible data <laughs> undertaking here. Yeah, so you test a, a bunch of different channels through which parental incarceration and sibling incarceration could be affecting these outcomes. So, so tell us about those different tests that you run and, and what you find.
1: Sure. Uh, so, the so there's a bunch of different tests that we run, and so for, as you said, like for a phenomenon this complicated, for you know removing a parent from the life of a child, um, there's a lot of different things that are going to be going on here, and so the story that we have is or the story that we find is certainly not going to be a simple story where there's one mechanism that's driving anything, everything. It really seems to be like a, more of more of a multi-causal story. And so the first thing that we wanted to look at is as economists we think that you know economics matters resources available to the household matters and so something that had been a strong prior of ours was that when you remove a, a parent from the from the household from from the child that may be removing some economic resources that potentially could be beneficial for the child. And so one of the first tests that we wanted to do is look to see is this actually the case? Is it the case that when you uh, remove a parent for, from the household uh, based on uh, uh You incarcerate the parent. Um, Is it the case that this, um, at least in ways that we can measure, uh, worsens the economic uh, uh, status of of the child? And so the two ways that we do this is the first, as I I mentioned a little bit before, is we look at evictions court data. And so we look to see, uh, so for for children, uh, so we look to see if one parent is incarcerated, do we see that the other parent, which is predominantly where the child is going to be living, is the other parent more likely to show up in evictions court uh, records uh, as having an eviction notice uh, served against them. And so we find no difference in the likelihood of having uh, an eviction notice served against them. So this is a measure of a very extreme uh, type of of financial distress. Uh, Another thing that we do is we're going to use the the data on on residential address. And so we look to see when one parent is incarcerated, do we see that this causes the other parent to be living in a neighborhood that's lower socioeconomic status? uh, than, than were before, and so we, again we don't see an effect on of having. So let's say we're taking uh, we're taking parent A. We don't see an effect of parent A being incarcerated on the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood that parent B is living in, where this is a proxy measure of the the neighborhood that the child is living in, um, since typically they're going to be living with with parent B. Um, and so that doesn't. So our prior was this was going to be a strong effect. It, it doesn't seem to be the case. I think the reason for this is, is something you alluded to earlier, which is that uh, in many cases the the parent um, who's on the margin of incarceration, they may be only a, potentially a marginal source of of income for the household, uh, and in some cases they may actually be um, maybe uh, draining some economic resources for the child for the from the household, uh, particularly in cases where um, the parents um, have uh, some sort of substance abuse. Um, uh, issue or, or something of, of that nature, and uh, so this may be the reason that we don't see very, uh, we don't really see much in the way of uh, economic effects of this. Um, a second mechanism that we wanted to look at is, you know, maybe what's happening here is that there's rehabilitation, where what's happening is the parent is incarcerated, uh, this incarceration leads to rehabilitation, so there's a really nice paper, uh, Bueller et al. In, in Norway that finds that uh, incarceration of um, of individuals actually can improve their later life outcomes uh, by, by rehabilitating them. And so we look at rehabilitation to see after, if we take the parents where some of them are incarcerated, some of them are not using this random assignment of cases to judges as an instrument for incarceration, uh, what we find is that being incarcerated um, initially reduces the amount of crime that the parents are committing. But this is really just due to uh, the fact that the, parents, that the parents who are incarcerated um, are incapacitated, and so they're not able to commit crimes. But once they're released from, uh, from either jail or prison, we see that they don't commit crimes really at any higher or lower rates than the parents uh, who are not incarcerated. Uh, and so it doesn't seem like there's really that much in the way of rehabilitation of the parent who is incarcerated. Something else we look at, which is a very similar test is say, okay, maybe the parent who's incarcerated is not rehabilitated, but maybe the other parent uh, changes their behavior, changes their activity uh, as a result of the the other parent being incarcerated. So parent A is incarcerated. Maybe parent B changes uh, what they're doing. So maybe they, um, say, become less likely to engage in criminal activity because they know they're really the only parent who's still there and they need to be at home to take care of the child. They can't afford the risk of uh, engaging in criminal activity. And so we do see some evidence of this where uh, the parents who um, the, the non-incarcerated parent is a little bit less likely to, to be incarcerated themselves. Um, and so that that seems like some evidence of this, though the effects are, are relatively small. Um, Places where we think there there is potentially um, more going on here is, is two other mechanisms, a deterrence mechanism and then a removal of a, a criminogenic influence mechanism. Um, and so the, deter- the idea behind the deterrence mechanism is that children, uh, through experiencing the criminal justice system through the eyes of their parents, uh, this may make them less likely to commit crimes themselves uh, uh, later in life. Uh, Or, for example, if they see the negative, uh, potentially emotional impact that being separated from their parents uh, has on them, they may say, I'm less likely to engage in criminal activity because I don't want to do this to my family members or or my children. Uh, And so this could potentially reduce their likelihood of engaging in criminal activity. One interesting mechanism that, again, sort of ran against my my priors going into this, um, though it's one that's consistent with with, uh, something from a a nice ethnographic work by uh, Megan Comfort called Doing Time Together, uh, which follows the romantic partners of uh, incarcerated men uh, and California. Uh, one thing that we might imagine that happens is that after a parent is incarcerated, this may lead to a relationship dissolution where if parent A is incarcerated, maybe this makes it less likely that they're going to continue to be in a relationship with parent B and may or, and through that uh, may continue may be less likely to um, have a relationship with their children. On the other hand, this isn't necessarily obvious what's going to happen, where it may be the case that um, by being incarcerated, this may reduce the the parents' outside options or it may cause them to reprioritize in such a way that causes them to prioritize the relationships that they had uh, before they were incarcerated. We actually find some evidence of that, where um, what we do is we look at the parents who are incarcerated. So let's say parent A is incarcerated. We look to see what is the likelihood that they have a, a child uh, with parent B. The parent with whom they already had a child prior to being incarcerated versus having a, a child with some other um, with some other parent. Uh, so they, there's parent C out there who they haven't had another child with. And what we find is that uh, people who are incarcerated for this uh, quasi-random reason of, of random assignment to, of cases to judges are actually more likely to have children with the mothers of their children prior to their uh, incarceration and less likely to have children with with new parents or with with other um with other mothers in this case uh, we only see this for fathers so fathers are less likely to have parents with with new mothers more likely to have uh children with with the the mothers with whom they they previously had a relationship and so this maybe means that they're more likely to um, be involved with the mothers um, afterwards and potentially more likely to be involved with the with the child. Uh, so this is potentially one mechanism uh, through which there might be some, some positive effects. Again, though, we always have to think about what's the heterogeneity here, where there's certainly probably some population of parents for whom that's true, other ones for which relationship dissolution may be more true. But it may be the case that those parents who recommit to the relationship, maybe those are the ones who are the most beneficial relationship um, in their child's life uh, going forward. And so all of that to say is that there's a lot of really complicated things that are going on here. We have some suggestive evidence on some mechanisms. There's some I think that we can kind of rule out, other ones that we don't have as good of evidence on. Uh, but it's, it's really just a complicated story that's uh, that's going on here. And a lot of different things are playing into the, into the effects that we find.
0: So as you mentioned, there, there have been a bunch of new papers on this topic released in the past year or so. We went from having almost no well-identified research, uh, as, you know, as far as economists would consider well-identified on this issue to having five or six studies. I think you were right about that. I still haven't had a chance to sit down and read them all side by side, but I suspect that you have (laughs) since you've written about this. (laughs) So I want to pick your brain about them. So tell us about those other studies, uh, and what else we've learned about the spillover and intergenerational effects of incarceration since you and your co-authors first started working on this paper. Definitely. Uh,
1: And so I I think it's, uh, I should say up front, I think it's great for science that we have all these different uh, results, especially since a lot of them are coming from different contexts and, as I'll say in a second, uh, get slightly different results. And so I think having all of these really emphasizes potential heterogeneity. And um, I think that's just really important in thinking about a problem that's that's as complicated as parental or or sibling incarceration. And so just to go through the list of of pieces of evidence that we have. So I think I early talked about the the Billings paper in North Carolina. And so this is looking at short-run effects of parental incarceration on there. Uh, what he finds is relatively positive effects on things like behavioral outcomes where children immediately after their parents are incarcerated, um, they're actually less likely to have behavioral problems in school than the the children who have uh, behavioral problems in school. It's a slightly different identification uh, design, so it's using student fixed effects. So really comparing the child's uh, when their their parent is after they're arrested or after they're incarcerated to when the parent was not arrested or not incarcerated. So it's slightly different strategy, but I think informative nonetheless. Um, There's going to be... number of papers that are very similar to ours and using the same identification strategy. So these are going to be using random assa- assignment of cases to judges. And so these are going to be coming from a bunch of different contexts. So there's one paper in, in Norway, uh, one paper in, in Finland, uh, one paper in Sweden, uh, one, one paper in, in Colombia. Um, and so all these are going to be using uh, random assignment of cases to judges uh, across those different uh, jurisdictions. And what they find is actually going to be fairly different from one another. Uh, so starting off with the, the Norway and the Finland paper, uh, so the paper uh, in in Norway um, so there um, what they find is um, they find a null effect however what the paper states uh, and so I think this is a, a direct quote or, or roughly close to that as that the IV estimates are too imprecise to be informative and so really what's I think an issue that they run into, and this is something that you know we experience as well, and I think a lot of IV IV papers do, is just the sample sizes in Norway just were not large enough to be able to say something uh, super convincing about whether there's a positive or, or negative effect. Uh, but in general, the effect that they find is a null. Um, the Finland paper again is going to have a, a bit of an imprecision, um, some issues. Uh, they get some more um, some more compelling results on what's the direct effect of incarceration uh, for parents. Um, for the other things that they look at, they find more uh, null or, or or perhaps slightly negative effects of having an incarcerated parent um, on the child of uh, that paper is uh they're still working on that i think it's really exciting they've got some really nice uh, outcomes that they're looking at there so i'm excited to see the the final draft of that um the two other papers uh one is in sweden and this one is in Colombia. so i'll, I'll keep going with the, the scandinavian countries and, and start off with sweden um and so what this paper is going to find is they're going to look at a bunch of different outcomes and so they're going to have um a bunch of different things that they can look at. I have to say, uh, very jealous of all the all of the Scandinavian data. I think uh, me and many other people working in the U.S. Uh, when we see uh, the many thing amazing things that they can look at, it it just uh, it makes it makes me wish that we, we had the same thing in in the U.S. <laughs> um, but some of the things that they find is, so one thing that they look at is on teen pregnancy. And so they find very, very substantial increases in teen pregnancy as a result of having an incarcerated parent. And so I think the, the effect size is it's an increase of something like 176% uh, over the dependent variable mean. And so this is a really, really large effect. Um, they also find some increases in, in juvenile criminal activity. Again, again fairly large uh, increases as a function of having incarcerated parent, uh, lower likelihood of being employed at age, at age 20. Uh, so these are gonna be a little bit more short run effects um, than ours since the, they're going to be looking at, at mostly prior to age age 20. Uh, but again, I think it's, it's pretty easy to say that these are going to be negative effects, and, and the negative effects that they find there are almost certainly going to extend the, to the later time period. Um, and then finally, uh, the paper in Columbia uh, looks at... Um, at schooling, and so there the primary outcome is going to be looking at years of schooling. Uh, and uh, uh, What she finds is that uh, having an incarcerated parent, uh, particularly incarcerated mother, leads to relatively positive effects where children whose, whose parents are incarcerated achieve um, more schooling than the children whose parents are not incarcerated. And so this is a Maybe at first seems like a hodgepodge of, of different results, and indeed it is hard to say why are different people getting different uh, different estimates. Uh, but I think there's a few things that we can we can learn from this, and I think it, it's great that we do have all these estimates uh, in order to to learn from. And so I think one of the the primary things that that's going on here is that just there's very different populations potentially of people who are being incarcerated across all of these different contexts. And so for example, in Colombia, uh, Colombia. Um, the the defendants there who are on the margin of incarceration it looks like are probably committing slightly more serious crimes than the ones that we see um in the US and so potentially if the defendants are committing somewhat more serious crimes uh then one reason why these effects may be so positive is potentially um because it's it's removing a, a defendants who are potentially um, having a more uh, negative influence on on the on, on the children through unstable home environment or or the like. Uh, in general, though, I'd say I think that our our results in and in, in hers are, are very similar. Um, and so I think, in general, I think the our two papers are, are pretty broadly consistent. Uh, I think a reason for that is just that the criminal justice system uh, in Colombia is, is just much more similar to the the one in U.S. potentially than than in the Scandinavian countries. Uh, and so in in Sweden, potentially, uh, though I actually I don't know the answer to this. I should uh, I think the the draft the the early the previous draft that I looked at I don't think had that much evidence on this. So I should go look to, to the most updated draft. Um, but my guess is some things that may be going on there is um, one that. The defendants may just be um, committing, on, on average, less serious crimes. Or there may be reasons that have to do with that particular context, um, for which uh, which mean that removal of the of the parent is potentially having a, a more negative outcome. Uh, there may also be more of a deterrence fact in, in Colombia and the U.S., where uh, Scandinavian prisons are are sort of known for being um, less uh, severe. Uh, shall we say than Then U.S. prisons or, or prisons in Colombia, and so maybe that there's a stronger deterrence effect of seeing a parent who's incarcerated in the in the U.S. or Colombian context. Um, in general, though, what I'd say is I think we don't have great. I, I think we can speculate, and so everything that I just said is complete speculation. But in general, I think all the estimates that we get are you know very relevant for our context. I think those are good papers. I've, I really I don't have I don't have with the papers. I think the estimates that we all get are telling us some, like something really important about the different contexts that we're looking at. And so I think that our estimates are, are great and very applicable in the context that we're looking at. I think what this tells us, however, is that it seems like there's a fair amount of heterogeneity across space. And so though I suspect that people may not have that much of an appetite for you know, coming up with the sixth and the seventh paper on parental incarceration using random assignment of cases to judges, I think it would actually be great to see more evidence on this uh, from other contexts um, and to try to understand um, more, more on the nature of this heterogeneity. Um, but in general, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of heterogeneity in this. There's a lot of mechanisms that are going on here. And so um, I think that that's, it, it's maybe not the most satisfactory answer to say, I think there's a couple of reasons why this might be true, but we don't know for sure. Um, but uh, that, that that's the best that I have.
0: Such is the nature of research. Yeah, I think it's the same thing, actually, in just measuring the effect of incarceration on the person incarcerated. We get, we have a bunch of different studies all measuring, you know, measuring the effects in different contexts. So you've got different marginal offenders, different treatments say incarceration means different things in Norway than it does in the United States. And they find different estimates. And I think we're really just at the beginning of of trying to sort out why, you know, what what's leading to the positive effects in some places and negative effects in other places. And obviously that's important if we want to design a better system. Okay. So what are the policy implications of your paper and the other work in this area? What, When policymakers come to you and ask what they should do based on your results, what do you tell them?
1: Yeah, so the, the first thing that we that we would try to do in the, in this case is to be very careful because I think there's a lot of ways in the, which these results could be applied in ways that we that we don't really think are right, and so we, it would be very clear nothing in the in the paper we don't say what our results is saying is that we should be locking up more parents. That's that's definitely not what we think. That's 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 not uh, the takeaway that we'd have from this. Uh, The way that I would would read our results is to say that uh, for a set of children uh, who are in a very highly vulnerable situation, so these are children whose parents are on the margin of incarceration, we are seeing these positive consequences of this particular policy intervention, which is to say incarceration. This doesn't necessarily mean we should be incarcerating more people. Incarceration is a highly costly policy. There's also probably emotional consequences that we're not going to be able to measure here. Um, But what it does say is that this set of children who have parents who are on the margin of incarceration are fairly elastic in their later life outcomes. And so we see that this intervention, which is you know a, a pretty major one, is having a pretty substantial impact on them in ways that are reducing their likelihood of future criminal activity, improving long-run socioeconomic status, both things that are really, really difficult to shift around. And so what we think is what this means is that, first, this is a population that there should be more policy attention focused on, and that the prob- probably the, the best policy intervention is not necessarily going to be incarceration. There may be other potentially cheaper uh, ways of, of, of having some of the same results, um, but without the negative consequences that we would imagine uh, from incarceration, uh, both potentially on the child in terms of emotional consequences, as well as um, you know other reasons such as uh, budgetary reasons or all the other negative consequences that we've seen uh, for direct consequences of, of incarceration. Um, I think also for something that's helpful to think about here um, and I, again, want to be very careful in in, in my language or the, the way that I speak about this. I think what this really highlights is the heterogeneity here, where there's certainly some children who are being harmed by having incarcerated parents, uh, and some children who are being uh, potentially helped. And so what I think this highlights is that, one, just the, the importance of the role of the judge, uh, where if they are taking this into account in their, in their sensing, and indeed in some cases they are. Um, Understanding that there are some cases in which it's going to be more beneficial than others and, and trying to um, think about sentencing in those ways where uh, we, had, on net, for the people who are marginal, we find these positive effects. Um, but this certainly doesn't mean it's the case that uh, that judges should start incarcerating massively larger numbers of, of parents in order to uh, to achieve some of some of these ends. Um, but more broadly, and I think just in terms of thinking about future research as well, um, understanding this heterogeneity I think is is going to be is going to be really important. And um, aside from trying to come up with interventions that um, are beneficial in the lives of children who, whose parents are on the margin of incarceration, I think understanding what are the characteristics that make um, the effects be beneficial in some cases and, and more detrimental in others is a really important uh, next step for for future research uh, and potentially may also help us in resolving some of these questions we were just talking about in terms of why do we see uh, different results in you know Scandinavian countries uh, than we do in, in the U.S. and Colombia. Um, but by the U.S. I mean both uh, both our paper and then also the the North Carolina paper uh, as well.
0: So that's a great segue into the, my, my research frontier question. Uh, so, so that is certainly a research frontier. We we need a lot more research than that. Any other big questions that have come up in the course of this research that you think that you or, and others working in this area will be thinking about in the years ahead?
1: Yes. I mean, in general, I think ju- just focusing on this population of, of children whose parents are incarcerated is just a really um, important and interesting population to focus on. So uh, there's the the estimates we actually have are are not very good on what what's the number of children who have incarcerated parents but it's probably on the order of around 5 million um- um, and so, or 5 million people in the U.S. who have had parents incarcerated at some point during their childhood. And so this is a really large population. So I think coming up with interventions that are focused on this particular population are potentially quite interesting, in particular thinking about um, different policy interventions such as changing around, say, visitation policy, changing around uh, the ways that people are assigned to prisons that can may change around visitation, things like that, um, thinking about alternatives to, to incarceration and seeing what is the effect that that uh, that this has on, on, on children. Um, um, I think is also I think all of these things are potentially really exciting. Um, just focused um, strictly on this on this area of uh, parental and sibling incarceration, uh, and then just to reiterate, I think the heterogeneity here is just incredibly important. Um, I think in order to to get at that, uh, we're going to need more and larger scale administrative data, and so um, I think that. Uh, so this is something we've talked about, and we've a, a few thoughts on ways that, that one could potentially do this, uh, but getting larger-scale administrative data to try to get a, a bit more of this heterogeneity to try to understand that better, I think is, is potentially a really important follow-up, uh, follow-up to this. And it just more broadly, I think, thinking about crime research generally, just as you said, is we do see in the crime literature that there are these really heterogeneous um, outcomes in terms of, say, the direct effect of incarceration, where uh, there's some studies showing that even, even within the U.S., uh, um, there's some studies showing, you know, incarceration reduces later criminal activity. So there's a, a really nice recent paper by, um, by Shemtov and, and Rose uh, that was a job market paper this year. Uh, then there's also other papers showing that uh, this has pretty negative uh, consequences. It, it causes people to be more likely to commit crimes once they're released, like uh, Mueller-Smith in, in Houston, which is another great paper. Uh, and so I think getting more data like this that will enable us to try to understand what is causing these, this heterogeneity, I, to me, just seems like really the first order thing. Um, and so it's something we're, we're thinking about a little bit now in terms of follow-up research on this. Um, but I just think that to me, that that seems like really what's crying out for for better answers in the economics of crime literature.
0: My guest today has been Jeff Weaver from the University of Southern California. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is now part of Doliak Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation. You can find links on our website please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.